Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Father, your word is alive and true. You are real today, Father, and you're real, Lord God, because not because you are trapped within the ink and the paper of, of, of Bibles, Lord, but you are active in the fact that you've allowed these words to be carried throughout all history to us today on this printed media, in our digital media, Lord God, where we are able to engage with a text and be able to understand that which you have made sure that we, the information that you've made sure that we can have today. Father, help us to be faithful stewards. Help me today to be a faithful steward in, in, in showing how your word is active and alive. Lord, humble our hearts so that we might hear and let your word speak above all our, our prejudices, our desires, Lord God, and even, you know, our own selfishness as it would manifest itself in various ways. Help us to humble ourselves to your word so that it can shape the way that we think so that, Lord, the word can be true, that God be true and let every man be a liar. Father, thank you for your word today. Help me, Lord, to be faithful in heart, Lord God. Help our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't, I mean, today, to, to be honest with you, you know, you can, you can do an overview where I guess sometimes you can oversell it. And um, so the really meaty bits, I guess um, we might assume they're the meaty bits, the actual aspects of, of the judges themselves, I don't really want to go into um, and, and kind of give an overview of why I think they're important today, that you just have to be there. So, um, but what I want to do is I want to focus on the intro and the end, because I think these are interesting bookends as to why Judges is an important book for us today and why it is in the canon of scripture. And if you're like myself... Geography lessons were immensely boring. I, uh, you know, I, I, it, it, when I kind of think of why I never enjoyed school back in, back in the day, it, was, it really was mainly because I think primarily of geography. My geography lessons were, um, you know, come in, you sit. I think the first couple of weeks we might have looked at the map of Europe and and said, this is where all the different countries are, and you know, can you identify where you know, France is and Germany is, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. I'd like to see how places fit in. And then um, very quickly it descended into a um, copy out of a book. Um, and so I was, I was not engaged. So when um, commentators introduce... Um, the book of Judges is a book about geography. You know, you can have your backup. But like those first few lessons where all of a sudden I was engaged, uh, let us not disengage with the fact that geography actually tells us a lot of important stuff. So, that, you know, so my opening statement about Judges 1 to 3 and throughout really is the book of Judges is as much a book about places as it is about people. We cannot forget these places. Um, we cannot forget these places because the original readers, they would have invoked 
strong feelings and memories just as much as uh, places invoke strong feelings and memories for us today. You know, I say, think of Paris, think of Venice, think of Vienna. And we kind of think of, oh, cities of love. Recently went to Venice, and it's a nice place. People are trying to give you roses all the time, you know. Yeah, you know. And it's interesting because when we see, you know, when we see it on the, you know, highlighted as, you know, they're great places for love, you know. You've got to take the missus there. And so, in a sense, we can begin to see how places invoke certain responses to us. Now think of Egypt, Jerusalem, Rome, or Athens. And we think of the old ancient world, the old powers. We think of the Colosseum, we think of the temple, we think of pretty much where our Bibles are set. And it kind of puts us in that kind of the land of the Bible. Again, it invokes a response to us of what we think of these places. And when we go to these places, again, travel agents build them as places that you can go and see the ancient world. Go see the pyramids. Go see the Colosseum. Go see the old Jerusalem city. Go see the Parthenon. Now think of Normandy. Beirut, Gaza, Afghanistan, Baghdad. And we think of the ravage, <laughs> the ravages of war. You know, again, not the kind of place that you would uh, readily show up on our uh, travel agent's itinerary of great places to go. Because, again, they invoke a response. Someone said, I'm going to Afghanistan we would say, in what, like I said, in what capacity? Places bring responses. And the problem is, is that our connection to the places within Jerusalem and in Judges, that we, we, we have lost that. We are not the original readers. And so later on, as, I, as we kind of unpack the, the significance of Judges, when it mentions a place, remember the economy of the word is such that when it mentions something, it does it for a reason. You know, like you said, we're, in our experiences today, history books, things like the Britannica and, and all this information of, you know, of centuries of history, they're massive things. I mean, you know, they are, a, they are a bookcase within themselves, and that is their concise versions. Judges is, is 21 chapters. It's trying to give you the nugget We must also say that Judges is like all history. Like all history, it is selective and biased. So does this mean that we cannot trust it? So we might sit in our hearts and say, yeah, you know, all history is, is selective. And that's true. But I believe the significance of this particular history book, this particular recording of these, the narratives of these people's lives and, his, and Israel's own um, success and failures within the land really is not just mere history from a human perspective, it is actually history from God's perspective. That's what makes it different. In that regard, it is 
history that is theologically orientated. So Judges is written in, 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 in a fashion where, like all the other history books, is written like, we can all make an opinion about how other people live their lives. But it's almost like the Bible has sidestepped and said, what does God have to say about the way that we've lived our lives? And this is the way the Jews have recorded their history. This is how God saw us. Very different perspective. It is not history from a mere human perspective, though written by humans. It is their critique by their convictions of how does God actually see us. So how does Judges begin? We have a piece of history here that is punctuated by the death of Joshua. It begins in chapter 2 by saying Joshua is dead and that leadership that faithfully followed him have now died out. And now Israel is actually concerned now where where will new, well, not that it immediately shows up, but where will new leadership come from? Where will we find another Joshua? As we read in the book of Samuel, um, who is considered the last judge, this issue doesn't go away there. In many respects, some would say that the, the the era, a period of around 200 to 300 years of the judges has really failed Israel. And we see that the, the only answer that they can figure, think about is we need a king. But the problem with this answering, asking for a king is not so much a rejection of the judges that God had provided during the period, but it's actually a rejection of God. Again, it's interesting, isn't it? As I said, if we kind of flick back to how I said, it's like, it's not what we say or what we say that we want, it's why we say it. And the first thing I will introduce you with from the book of Judges is it, it actually critiques what they ask for. Why are you asking for a king? Not because we, we, we really do need a physical leadership. The theological angle of the book of Judges and Samuel, right through to the end of the Bible, is that you actually have rejected me as your God. You do not trust me to actually lead you and protect you. That's the theological angle of Judges. We do not want God to rule over us. And we, this will come a little bit clearer as we go deeper. And this may help us to understand the pattern within um, judges of why Israel fell into idolatry. Whenever a judge died that was able to kind of give them some kind of leading and saying this is what God will have us do, as soon as that judge died, they fell into sin and idolatry, being that primary thing that we are looking for something that really actually is about us. Why is that pattern there? 
The problem is that the people are engrossed in a man-centered government and not a God-centered one. In that sense, eye service was quite important. They want to be seen to be doing the right thing because, wow, you know, like we would probably stop doing certain things if we knew that the police were around or certain people, our parents were around. There's certain things we don't do because we don't like the whole idea of being scrutinized for it. That represents a fear and a love of man more than a love of God. Do you get the connection as to it's not what you do, it's why you do it? Why do you not do the certain things that you do? Do you really believe that you shouldn't really speed? Or do you just believe that speeding is something that you don't do when police are around? Or cameras? It's that kind of scrutiny that the Bible offers us. So the people wanted a man-centered republic, not a God-centered monarchy. You know, today we might be aware of the whole idea of, uh, you know, let's get away with the monarchy and, you know, let's make ourselves a genuine republic. This is the issues that we, we see going on even in Parliament um, every now and then. It never, I don't think it ever seriously gets um, that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people take it that much seriously because I guess there's, there's too many royalists around. But um, and I guess to some extent we are royalists in our hearts once we see a royal wedding. <laughs> but the, the, the issue is that it's always there. We are always kind of saying, well, let's, let's get to this republic aspect of let's, let's govern ourselves. Let's do away with people and let's do away with figureheads and, you know, let's get this democratic process going. And again, like you said, it's a man-centered aspect of how we govern ourselves, a, a pluralism that we will, again, it's a term that we are going to explore. We, we kind of want to be able to see representation coming from all different areas. And I don't think democracy is wrong in that regard. So this is not me saying that um, people being a republic, they're, they're living in sin. But like I said, it, we have to scrutinize why we prefer being a democratic, the democratic process. We have to scrutinize why we prefer to be a republic. Are we rejecting God? Are we rejecting the whole concept of leadership so that we can get a little bit more power for ourselves? Is, is that the reason why we want more democracy? We've lost our ability to trust God. You know, Again, the whole idea of trust in leadership is rife throughout the Bible. I mean, here's Paul writing in Romans to submit to the leadership. And this is the time of Nero, who has no love for Christians. How do we take that? So anyway, because the books of the Bible are written from a theological perspective, so the history is theological, Samuel's words are quite important. And Samuel's words are so scathing... Um, that when we look at 1 Samuel 12, um, if you want to take that as your notes, I'm going to read it here. That's an important verse to kind of earmark here. It says, but when you saw Nahash, this is Samuel speaking, pardon me, king of the Ammonites come against you, you said to me, no, exclamation mark, a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. 
Samuel's words have penetrated their desire to have a physical leader to the fact that he said, this is what you really want. You want to reject God as your king. When David comes to the throne, it must be noted that David was God's man. David had this epitaph over his life after the rejection of Saul, the people's king, that he was a man after God's own heart. Why does I, you know, why do why does why does the Bible record David with that particular epitaph over his life and proclaims it to all of his children that it was, the, it, was the provide, it was the prevailing message over all the house of Judah until it fell to the Babylonians. I believe it is there because, again, as, as theological history and not just man history, is that because it records the fact that David knew that Israel was really governed by God. In other words, it was truly godly leadership. It wasn't a man sitting on a throne saying that I'm in charge of all these people and they will do my will as I please, as we find with so many leaderships today. David actually realized, hence he was prepared to wait to be king and not to do it by violent means, that God was the true king of Israel. God is the only king. But the rejection of God as king is not, an, is not really re- restricted to an Old Testament issue. It's a New Testament one as well. We see this in the rejection of Jesus by the Jews at his child, trial before Pilate. Again, reading from John 19 and the Amplified Version, um, verse 14 and 15 say this. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour, about 12 o'clock noon. He said to the Jews, see, that is Pilate, here is your king. But they shouted, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Think about that for a little while. Here we see a much, on a much clearer level, what was happening in the hearts of the Jews and our hearts today as well since the fall. We prefer the rule of man whom we can manipulate and flatter to the inflexible rule of God whom we cannot. I mean, from the, from the book of Judges, I will show you that God was already beginning to write himself into the history of Israel. It was, through the life of Jesus, we see that it was always God's intention to actually come and 
actually be physically present with them and rule. In other words, Jesus' birth and incarnation was a foregone conclusion. God was coming to actually rule them. What's so interesting about their response is that in the light of Christ being presented to them as that king, remember, even a donkey can speak the truth of God. And so Pilate is actually speaking the words of God. And he says, here is your king. And even more clearly we see they rejected the whole notion of God coming and ruling them. To the point where they would rather have a Gentile, a pagan Gentile called Caesar in his epitaph, to rule us. I want Caesar. Now, they never really wanted Caesar, but given the choice between the two, I would rather have Caesar. Do not let God rail up. We want a man whom we can manipulate. And you know what? When you look at those verses within the Gospels, you actually see they were manipulating Pilate to the decision that they wanted. We want government that we can democratically and, you know, through lobbying, we can intimidate into our will. We want a government that will enforce on us uh, homosexual marriage even though the majority of the UK doesn't want it. That's what we want. The truth is, is that obviously when we see those particular issues like gay marriage come up, we, we realize that democracy can come and bite us on the bum. And pluralism doesn't necessarily bring all that we want. In a sense, the meat of the matter is in my third and final stage, is to, is to kind of look at the Bethlehem Trilogy. Now, the Bethlehem Trilogy is, um, you know, sorry, it's a very quick overview of one and two to kind of place the whole idea of leadership, of, of godly leadership going, um, and basically one and two, judges one and two sets us up for the pattern of why the judges come, go, and people do what they want to do. Um, and again, it will lead us into our main text today, which is that um, there was no king in Israel. Every man done what was right in his own heart. And, it, and, it, and it's really tried to clarify that as the key verse that helps us to understand what Judges is about. And it's the Bethlehem Trilogy that actually brings us to that point where we can understand that because Bethlehem Trilogy is, is, is really um, the last couple events of the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. The book, of, um, the book of Ruth was originally a part of the book of Judges, and I, I guess I have to start by, by clarifying that. And so you, you, you end with Judges with um, three, basically, events. Three events. I guess two were, the first two we can see are clearly negative. One is about um, uh, 
the, the, the pervasiveness of, of idolatry within, within Israel to the point where even the Levites were complicit in it. And the second one is about a, a, a heinous uh, gang raping of a Levite's wife, um, or concubine, should I say, um, a common law wife, who, um, again, which leads to a civil war and the, the near decimation of the, um, the Benjamite tribe. And then we come to a very positive story in Ruth, which is, um, again, if, if anyone has read Ruth, is, is probably um, about as good as a love story as you can get. You know, um, you know if, if, we, if, we, if we kind of uh, think along the lines of maybe something like Pretty Woman, I mean, it's like, it's, 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 it's like chalk and cheese coming together in a way that is completely beautiful. A, a heathen woman becomes um, the bride to a wealthy Jew. <laughs> it's a beautiful love story. <laughs> and all of these stories feature Beth- Bethlehem as a key point. They all, in some way, incorporate Bethlehem into the narrative. And that's the reason why they called the Bethlehem Trilogy. So, I guess my point is, and... and, and Uh, as I speak more, hopefully it will become a little bit more clear, is that this is the first point where Bethlehem, in the context of places, remember, will actually land on the map within the biblical canon. In other words, God is highlighting, through the book of Judges, where he's coming from. So that when we read, you know, again, um, Brother Andrew alluded to this text, and it, you, you actually wrote some of my sermon, Brother. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that when you mentioned Micah 5.2 last week. Because Micah was writing a long time after David was born and saying, look to Bethlehem. Your king will be born there. But we'll come back to that. But the, 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 the one thing that we need to kind of note as we're as we, as, as we going to dive into, obviously, um, Judges as a book, is that uh, within the context of Judges 1 and Judges 20, again, we see God pointing to himself and where he's going to come from because the key feature of the book is that Judah, as a tribe, takes primacy in the beginning of the book and the end of the book. When it comes to the war against the um, uh, when it comes to the war against the tribes in, in the, the, the pagan tribes in the land in Judges one, it's Judah is, that is the, the army that is called to lead all the other tribes' armies into war. In Judges twenty, again, when you come to the Benjamites and the issue there and the civil war that had taken out there, all the tribes had come to the point where Judah should take a lead in fighting against the Benjamites. Is this mere Judean propaganda? You know, a book that's written from a Judean perspective. And I think that it was written to give Judah the primacy. And not because, again, it was mad-centered history. It was God again pointed to where the king will really come from. I believe this is trying to fix the reader's eye to a key place where God will provide the answer to Israel's problem. It's saying, look to Judah. Look to Judah to lead you. 
God himself is setting himself up to enter the history of Israel and the world where the invisible rule of God will become the visible rule of Christ. So why are these stories significant, this, this Bethlehem trilogy? And again, the primacy of Judah being its key point. And so in, in Judges 17.6, the Levite of Judah leaves Benjamin. So we see the beginning of that, that particular um, text, which is punctuated in those last few verses, those last few chapters, sorry, of the book of Judges, which is, in those days, Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right in his own eyes. And, and this repeats itself. At the beginning, in 17.6, so that's our key text today, if you can please note that. In Judges 17.6, it is noted that in those days, they had no king. Each man did what was considered to be right. And that's how it begins. At the beginning of each other story, you see it appear in a truncated form, which says, in those days, there was no king. And then it ends, the final words of the Bible, um, of Judges, sorry, is, again, this exact same phrase, this exact same statement. In those days, Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right in his own eyes. And it's interesting that, the, um, again, as I said, the geography lesson that you have in, um, in, these, in these chapters are, are, are quite intense and are, are a lot more real with, in, in a sense where I think that we are lost if we are, if we are not, as you were, avid readers of the Bible where we can see why these places had particular significance. So as I said, the first story is about a, a Levite that leaves Bethlehem and pursues a, a, a better position for himself. Um, and so he goes and he ends up at a man's house um, in, the, in the hills of Ephraim. And he ends up at this, at this man's house and, um, oh, called Micah. And uh, Micah basically is, is, is an idolater. And he's typical of probably of what the land would have been in those days. He had his little idol shrine and he sees this Levite. He gets excited. He says, come and be my priest. And, uh, you know, be my little, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of legitimize my idolatry. And believe it or not, the man comes along and he does it. Then come along the Danites. At this point, this is probably reflecting the early days of the period of the judges. And the Danites haven't actually found a place for their whole people to kind of lodge yet. All the other tribes have settled in the land. And the Danites come along, scouring the land, and they end up in the hills of Ephraim. And, the, and basically, they notice this, 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 this Levite and uh, his little shrine there. And they, they kind of get impressed, and they say, you know what, we... Uh, we want you and your idol, and you know we want to set this up wherever we go. And so basically, they uh, they uh, 
I guess it's a, it's a kind of a good kidnapping. He's, he's like, he's quite complicit. Yeah, I'll go with you. You know? So, though they are obviously going to take him forcibly, the whole idea of actually serving a whole tribe as opposed to just serving one man's household is actually quite appealing to the Levite. Even if it means that I'm going to be the leader of, an idol- you know, of idolatry. We ought to be saying at this point, a Levite ought to know better, considering their pedigree. But this is the, 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 nation, the notion of what the land was going through at that particular time. So anyway, the Levite uh, is whisked up to north and, and, and basically becomes, uh, uh, starts this idol worship. So, but why is this um, so significant? Why is this so significant? Especially being an early part of Israel's history. And I think the book of Judges is alluding to us to say that these places that we kind of look for leadership from, the Danites and the Ephraimites, is wrong. They never get it right. Because we'll see in their future, um, again, if you want to turn with me there, I think um, if time permits, I will read. I think, yeah, let's go for it. I know I'm going to be long today, and I'm not normally long, but... You know, praise God, it's an overview of a book <laughs> quality um, as opposed to one particular chunk. Um, you know, so a book gives us, <laughs> gives us a little bit more, hopefully, to, to go back and study for ourselves. So anyway, I want to I kind of see why this history, is so this early part of Judges is so important for how people would view Israel later on in their history. And so if you turn to, to 1 Kings 12... Um, and verse 25, I'm going to read through this because it will hopefully punctuate that the early part of Israel's history had set them up to a point where they were going to follow a pattern of a particular place that was, again, rife in their mind. Today, as I, you know, if you think back to the whole idea of how places bring back certain memories and, and follow similar patterns uh, that, that are hard to shake, we, we will actually become to a point where we, we might understand why history and places are so important. And it says in verse 25, And Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. Um, this is at the point where Jeroboam has just broke away from, Jerusalem, from, um, from Judah and is now um, uh, in control of ten of the tribes up to the north. And he does this, and he says, and In the hill country of Ephraim, which is where Micah is from, um, in Judges, and lived there, and he went out from there and built Peniel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, that is the Jude- Judeans. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple, the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of, the, of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two gold calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set set one in Bethel, that is the hill country of of Ephraim. And then the other he put in Dan, up in the north. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be, to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests among all the people who were not of the Levites. And a Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th, 15th day of the eighth month, 
like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, as, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar, and he, and he made, that he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, eighth day in the month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So, again, let us, let us be quick in understanding that the earlier idolatry that Israel adopted in these two particular regions is reprised in the days of Jeroboam in a way which would make people say, wow, can we really look to the other tribes other than Judah for a king? And we see very clearly here that the man-centered government that people so prefer devised in their heart to take them away from Judah. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the temple. I mean, we've got our own religion here. It's a really good religion. So we don't need to go to Judah anymore. We don't need to look to Judah anymore where God had placed his name. Are you beginning to see how history and places are quite important? And why we need to not look to, why we need to be quite focused in our view? Why Judah? God is writing himself into history. He is writing himself into the story. And he says, you can't look anywhere other than Judah for where I'm coming. And then when he makes his covenant with David, you can't look anywhere other than the, than the lineage of David. Why do the Gospels begin, Mark and Luke, with the lineage of David? It's important. Because people knew where Messiah would come from. In our second event, and this is our second story that ends the book of Judges as we know it today, we have another Levite. And he leaves Bethlehem as well. And he ends up in a place called Gibeah. And which is a, a, a village or a town, you might say, of the Benjamites. And he chooses this place to lodge for the night because he is making his way to another place because he believes that he would fare better in a Benjamite. Benjamite town than a pagan one which was naturally nearer to him and so he deviates and he says let's go to the Benjamite place uh, and he actually finds that their hospitality um, of the Benjamites in this particular town called Gibeah leave his concubine his common law wife gang raped and dead to add to the perversity they actually were looking to gang rape him first He cuts up his, his, his uh, common law wife and sends her body pieces to all the corners of Israel. And this necessarily sparks an outrage. And all the Israelites gather together and they say, let's have war against the Benjamites if they do not bring these people to justice. And the Benjamites um, decide that they are not going to comply with the order to submit these men uh, to basically 
capital punishment and decide to fight the rest of the tribes. And believe it or not, they actually win a few battles, even though they are outnumbered. And it's interesting, one of the concepts of war that we see within the the book of Judges, um, the fact that they do lose, even though they have superior numbers, was that the humility of the army comes up as quite an issue. So again, it might regulate the way that we see war as being that the people who carry out justice ought to be humble in doing it. The people who mediate punishment do so, realizing, therefore, the grace of God goes on. When the Israelites humble themselves, God gives them success. But why is Gibeah so important? Why is it so important? I have another text here, but I, I'm not going to go to it, which kind of highlights the... Um, it's 1 Samuel 22, 6 to 19. Write it if you again want to go there, but I, I will briefly outline... What it, what it says, but first I need to explain that Gibeah is the birthplace of Saul. It's his hometown. He has not been born yet. And Saul, obviously, is if, if, we, if we are versed in our Bibles, knows is the first king of Israel. The one that the people wanted. And the perversity that we see Saul carrying on with, and in particular in this text, 1 Samuel 22, 6-19, the slaughtering of Nob, which was a town of priests. And in frustration with the, with the priests of Nob, because Saul suspects that they helped David escape from his grasp, he slaughters men, women, and children of the Levite order. Simply because they defied him not realizing that David actually had deceived them into helping them. And the mercy of Saul is revealed in this particular text to to be that, I don't care. So again, Judges, in a sense, says, can we look to Benjamites to lead us? Can we look to Benjamin to be the source of our redemption? Can we find Messiah in Benjamin? Judges is telling you quite clearly through places and and for people, no. Look at the kind of things that Gibeah has been complicit in. Can we trust the men of Gibeah to lead us? But one of the, 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 the interesting facts is that it features a Levite and the motion of leaving Bethlehem to try and find a better life somewhere else. And as I said, the significance of this is that we need to look to Bethlehem. For a much grander purpose. As I said, the the book of Ruth rounds out this particular trilogy. And instead of finding a Levite, going away from Bethlehem to find help and a better life elsewhere, we find a Moabite woman coming to Bethlehem. She comes to Bethlehem, marries Boaz, 
and they become the great-grandparents of David. Here's what Micah 5.2 says, which I, I, I mentioned earlier. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephra, you are little to be among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come out of you shall one come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel whose going forth have been from of old from ancient days and uh, the, the amplified rhymes out that ancient days to mean eternity Micah also alludes to the fact that Ephra, uh, that Bethlehem has actually been put on the map much earlier than people realize it's a place that God had allowed history to record as being an important place. It tells us that bad things tend to happen when you look outside of Bethlehem for a king. But when you come to Bethlehem, God will give you a king after his own heart. But we find that the greater fulfillment of this text is that from David and from Bethlehem, the real king, God, writing himself into the history of Israel, will come and rule his people. Hmm. So, it's interesting that probably from the, why is it significant? Because we probably believe that David was the only king that, of Israel that was actually born in Bethlehem, from humble beginnings. Bethlehem never grew in prominence. It was still a humble town when Jesus was born there. And, you know, we, so we can assume that, that David, who chose Jerusalem as capital, um, that it's pretty clear that most of the kings of Israel was born in Jerusalem. But it's not Jerusalem that God would come from. So when we read the Gospels and we embrace the Gospels, we actually see the importance of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. It's not just this random thing. It's something that was written into history from ancient days. Look to Bethlehem, for there your king will come. There's so much more to be said about judges, but I, I hope this little snapshot is enough to get you excited about reading the Bible today with a clearer insight to its unity as a collection of books spanning over a thousand years of history. I think you get excited to see that Jesus has been written into the history of Israel. And that we can actually see if we would be like those people who say, we will have no leaders but Caesar. Uh, the title of this sermon today was, um, was a monarchy or the monarchism versus pluralism. You know, and I, I, I guess... What I mean about that is that do we want to reject the concept of rule, autonomous rule over us, and kind of adopt a kind of more pluralistic style, which is, again, prevalent as the secular mindset of our age? Do we align ourselves with a worldview that kind of agrees with the whole idea of pluralism, even though it might bite us in the bum every now and then? Or do we believe and need to promote the whole idea that our desire to have leaders who we can manipulate, is really our own heart telling us that we don't want God to rule over us. 
I hope you can see the importance of developing a Christian worldview. The Bible will not tell you how to get to Charing Cross. It will tell you why you need to go to Charing Cross. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.